You are listening to the Tri-Quarter Transmissions Episode 52. And now, here are Craig and Jeff. been a while since we've been with you in 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 our official regular episode series we did the last couple of weeks have been our uh convention wrap-up episodes and uh if anybody has forgotten we are your host jeff hewlett and craig cohen and yeah it is it is kind of crazy this is our, our first time talking a, a trek episode since before we left for las vegas uh back on what july 29th I know it's been a, it, it feels weird, you know, I, I was just thinking to myself before I sat down here and, and, and got you on the horn that uh, we it's been quite a while since we've actually done a commentary. But the last couple of weeks have been very different for the tricorder transmissions. And, and I've had some comments from some regular listeners and they were kind of taken aback by the fact that our regular episodes hadn't aired and we had taken a little bit of a side and focused on the convention. But of course, it was our first time at the convention. So we, we don't want to really belabor that since we gave you, you know, a good three hours worth of our comments on what, what went down at the convention. But now we're actually back in an official form and we're, this is episode 52 and we're going to be talking about the Omega Glory. Yep, yep. And and just to add on to that, um, I think it was, it was kind of cool that we were able to come back from Vegas take a couple breaths after delivering almost a year's worth of weekly commentary. Oh, absolutely. so I think it was kind of neat to sort of just uh, sit back for, for, for two or three weeks and, uh, and let the batteries recharge a little bit and um, you know, uh, cleanse our palate a little because <laughs> I know I came back from, uh, from Vegas and we talked about this um, towards the end of the trip it, uh, that it was going to be really hard to shake Star Trek, you know, and focus on other podcasts that we do, work, family, friends, anything. I mean, because in Vegas, you're sort of just dropped in the middle of all things Trek. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm right there with you. And, and it's taken me – I've been thinking a lot about we, – we do two other shows. Uh, you know, we do a, a Sylvester Stallone-focused podcast called Slycast, and we also do a Monkeys-focused show called Zilch. And I'm thinking to myself, we need to do all this recording on these other shows, and my brain is so focused on Trek at this point that yeah. it's been hard to even think about doing the other stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, totally. But uh, I am I am uh, anxious and ready to jump into another commentary, but I, I guess we have news this week. Well, we do have some news that we need to catch up on. We've got almost a month's worth of news to catch up on, so I'm only going to do a few items for this show. But before I actually jump into the news, this is a, a pretty typical of the Tricorner transmission. We always have a before we do something, we're going to do something else. But before we jump into the news, I have to tell you, Craig, that I, I know that you knew this. I don't know if the, the rest of the listening audience knew this, but I was so uh, inspired at the TrekCon that I decided to start getting back into reading Star Trek-related comic books. 
And I recently got a batch of comics in the mail, thanks to Mike Rittenhouse of the band Five Year Mission, who runs a comic book store. He has agreed to start shipping me comics, Trek-related comics, on a monthly basis, so I I can just kind of wait by my mailbox, and they show up, and I can just read them. And I read a photo novel. Oh, one of the John Byrne ones. Yeah, one of the John Byrne ones. And if anybody doesn't know what a photo novel is, a photo novel is a Trek comic book that uses still photographs from the original series with uh, word bubbles to tell a whole new story. And the one that I had read was, get ready for this, Craig, hold on to your hats. Okay. This relates to something we saw at the er, the, the Trek convention. This is yet another spin on oh, mirror, a mirror. sequel to the Mirror Mirror episode. <laughs> yeah. And we, at the convention, we went and we watched the Star Trek Continues, which is a fan-based Trek show. We watched their interpretation of what a follow-up to Mirror Mirror was. And now we have the John Byrne comic book interpretation of what a follow-up to the Mirror Mirror episode was. And they are two extremely different concepts. And I just finished reading it maybe a half an hour before we sat down. And I'll tell you, it's amazing to me the the directions and story that can be achieved from these people who are writing continuations. So you have one continuation that, that came from the mind of um, the star of the Star Trek Continues series. And you have this one from John Byrne, which kind of goes in a very different direction. And it features... Uh, Klingon Commander Core of all people. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, very, very cool and very, very different and actually quite a bit darker oh. than Star Trek Continues. So if anybody's watched the Star Trek Continues episode, uh, I recommend just run out and, and grab a copy of this photo novel and and check out this other alternate view on, on how this story could have played out. It's very cool stuff. Neat, neat. I know we had thumbed through one of those uh, at the convention, and then also um, when we were out and about looking for the city on the edge of forever uh, back in, um, I guess, June. Yeah, so now that we have two city on the edge of forever comic books out at this point, and we're waiting for the third, so uh, those are very cool. I've, I've read through the first two, and they're spectacular. It's great to see Harlan's original teleplay finally out there, and we can kind of sort of almost compare it to the episode City on the Edge of Forever, of course, that we've uh, we, we've come to know and love from the original series. Yeah. It's very, very awesome. So I guess we really should address this. This happened quite a while ago, and it's, a, it, it's something that kind of hits close to home since we had hoped to see her at the Star Trek convention, and she had canceled, and that is the oh. unfortunate passing of Arlene Martell. Yeah, that was really sad to hear about. Apparently, I guess she had had a, suffered a heart attack and uh, prior to the convention and never really recovered. So uh, very sad to see her go, uh, much too young. And uh, I know her involvement in, in both Star Trek uh, as to Pring uh, on the amazing episode of Muck Time, but then also she was on multiple episodes of The Monkees as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, an actress that, that brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. Uh, very sad to see her go. Yeah, very uh, well-known face. If you were a fan of any 60s television, you've probably seen Arlene out there. 
and on many different shows. And we we were left to wonder why she wasn't at the convention. And finally, I think towards the end of the con, we found out that she had actually canceled. And uh, we were kind of disappointed that we didn't get to see her. And uh, I guess she really wasn't feeling well. And it's a shame. I'm very sad to hear that she has has passed on. But it just so happens that in this episode that we're going to be talking about, the there is some throwback to Amok Time, so we will hear some of that iconic fight music yes. from Amok Time in this episode. So, uh, Arlene, I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to meet you, and uh, rest in peace. Yes, and, and thank you. And thank you for, for all the entertainment. So, a uh, few other things happened. So, we've got a, a crossover comic book happening between two very unlikely sources— one, of course, being Star Trek and the other being Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah. We talked about this with the, um, I think, Chris um, from IDW at the yes, Star Trek convention. we did. We did. Yeah, we're going to have to. I know he he told us he'd, he'd, he'd uh, be willing to come on with us. So um, when we get closer to publication, we should definitely reach out to him. But, uh, yeah, let's tell the uh, let's tell the, the audience more about this. This this is going to be another IDW comic, so I'm sure that with the IDW name on it, it's going to be a, a great story, well written and well illustrated. So it looks like uh, there's the idea of joining Star Trek universe with external universes is continuing, and we're going to be bringing the Planet of the Apes universe in, and it looks like um, it has something to do with Klingons. Uh, secretly backing a renegade guerrilla general uh, in in a coup for control of an ape city. Captain Kirk is going to be in in a position where he's going to have to team up with Dr. Zayas. (laughs) Awesome. So they've really intertwined the two universes pretty closely. I mean, you've got some major characters from both of them uh, aligning together to create a story. So, you know, I'm I'm I, I'll, I'll out myself here and say that I'm not a huge fan uh, of these types of things, but this does sound pretty intriguing. Yeah, and they have what uh, likeness rights to Charlton Heston, which right um, seems like they were uh, they were a big deal, and well, obviously they were a big deal to get. But it was interesting to talk to uh, Chris um, over at IDW about how that process works in terms of you know who you need to ask permission for likenesses and i guess who signed a deal that <laughs> that gives it up but uh so i i know i'm sure there are a lot of planet of the apes fans out there or casual planet of the ape fans that are also star trek fans that can't mm-hmm. imagine them doing a crossover and not having charlton heston's character in there oh absolutely yeah yeah i'm sure there's a lot of iconic uh planet of the apes characters who are also going to be included i mean we've already mentioned dr zayas but there are some other ones that i'm i'm sure will pop out of the woodwork here and the enthusiasm that we we experienced at the convention about this comic series is very cool, and I'm I'm looking forward to getting it. I'm sure that it will be in my monthly comic shipment, so I'll be talking about them as soon as I get them and I read them. So, excellent. Yeah, moving along, Shatner has released his uh, Get a Life DVD. And he's got some other things coming out in the near future that we heard about at the convention that actually Craig and I both seem pretty excited about. But he continues to keep working. I think this is fantastic that he continues to keep putting out new content. Oh, yeah, totally. It, it, it's it's great to see, uh, you know, Star Trek's approaching its 50th anniversary and to mm-hmm. see 
anybody that was involved in the original Star Trek still active and vital and contributing um, entertainment for us all these years later is just a, a, a true gift. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Shatner, I, I don't want to say he's he's held up really well, but he's held up really well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I know even uh, even Matt on the Facebook page uh, commented on our our photo with him that that Shatner looked really good in the photo and he, and he looked great in person. He did. He was he was larger than life. I mean, yeah. being able to stand next to him even for a brief few seconds or was was really, really cool. And he just I have to say I'm looking very much forward to his next uh, video project, which is going to be focused on the next generation of all things. Yeah. And it seems like it's got a really, really cool angle. It's sort of. From if, if I remember the trailer that they showed at the convention, um, and I only watched it that one time at the convention, but it almost is approaching the next generation from the, the standpoint that it could have been a huge disaster and it wasn't. Right, right, right. And yeah. he showed, you know, a little bit of a teaser there, you know, as to what we can expect. And I'll tell you, both of us sitting there watching this, we came out of it thinking, wow, this looks incredible. Yeah. They've got brand new interviews with... Looks like a lot of the cast. Absolutely. And some yeah. of the some of the, the backstage people, the writers, the yeah, directors, yeah. and it looks like you're going to get a really good wealth of knowledge from behind the scenes about the next generation, especially all of the events leading up to the series actually getting on the air. So if you're interested in that type of information, I think that this will give you exactly what you're looking for. Yeah, oh, totally. And uh, I think it's a, a brilliant idea to have William Shatner sort of present this because mm -hmm. it, it's a it's a great link between the original series and, and Next Gen. But it also, I think, is a great way to expose um, original series fans to the next generation and vice versa because there are people out there that are, you know, exclusive to one or the other. Absolutely. And we saw tons of evidence of that at the convention. There are people who are very much honed in on a single series. And, and that's a great thing. There's so much Trek out there that you really can find what you like the best and stick with it. I, I do know that the I don't know if you got more details about it, but I do know that the Shatner at the convention said that they had they had signed a lot of distribution rights and stuff like that. But we were sort of debating what he meant uh, in terms of when we were going to see it here in the States. Yeah, I have no new information, unfortunately, about that. But it looks like we'll, we'll be getting it at least before the holidays. Yeah, and, and we'll have to uh, see if we can uh, find the uh, the teaser that he, he showed at the convention, if it's online, and, and maybe drop it on the Facebook page or link to it on Twitter or even drop it in the show notes on the uh, the Tricorder Transmissions uh, web page. Sure. Definitely. So one more quick thing before we move into our commentary. There appears to be, and we saw the Gold Key Comics Volume 1 from IEW at the convention, and the Gold Key Volume 2, Gold Key Archives Comics, will be coming out shortly. And uh, this volume will contain issues 7 through 12, including uh, three different series one being the Voodoo Planet, uh, the second, the Legacy of Lazarus, and the Brain Shocker. So we're going to get 168 pages 
of Star Trek Gold Key Comics coming out in an anthology format uh, very shortly. Very cool. Yeah, I, I thumbed through that that first volume uh, quite a few times uh, there in Vegas and uh, really heavily debated uh, picking it up, but figured I would get it or uh, when I got back here to Jersey or, or add it to my, my list uh, come uh, holidays, birthdays, uh, time like that. Really looking forward to picking up Gold Key 1, and I guess I'll probably throw two on there and hopefully get them both at the same time. Yeah, it's great seeing all this stuff being uh, reprinted in, uh, in, in you know, IDW does tremendous, tremendous work. Uh, they're sort of like the rhino of comic books. The overall quality of the books themselves, they're, they're wonderful, and, and I can't uh, stress it enough. If you're an original series fan, you know, just their original series-related stuff is phenomenal. So I'm looking forward to getting more in the coming months and and reading more, and, and hopefully we'll have some new stuff to talk about, you know, way later in the future when we're done with our regular uh, TOS coverage. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you ready to jump into the Omega Glory? Uh, if we must. <laughs> oh, come on, man. All right. Well, the air date for the original episode is March 1st of 1968, and the remaster came on June 30th, of 2007. All right, and we have the NBC press release from February uh, 6, 1968. Captain Kirk and part of his crew were exposed to a deadly disease when they board the starship Exeter, whose crew died under mysterious circumstances in the Omega Glory on NBC Television Network's Star Trek Colorcast Friday, March 1st. All right, we will get started with our commentary in 3, 2, 1. Uh, ah, yeah. what a familiar sight. God, I feel like forever since we've been here. <laughs> you know, I, I love how Sulu gets the first shot here. He gets yeah. he gets some lines of dialogue. He gets a couple really good tight close-ups right at the beginning. Omega-4, they're, they're approaching Omega-4. It's always good to see the, uh, the, core, the core unit there on the bridge. I don't believe Chekhov. No. Yeah, yeah. No Chekhov. But, it, you know, it's... The second season is so sketchy, you know, who you're going to see behind that console. You never really know going into the episode who's going to be there. And uh, is it going to be Chekhov and some other guy? Is it going to be Sulu and some other guy? Is it going to be Chekhov and Sulu? Who knows? But, yeah, you know, it's nice to see Sulu back at the helm. Anyway, so we've got the USS Exeter that's also in orbit around this planet. Which, uh, it surprisingly or unsurprisingly, looks just like the Enterprise. <laughs> so, I, I don't want to bag on this episode for being, for lack of a, a I guess, a better word, redundant. Um, it seems like we've done a lot of this um, Earth-like scenarios this season. Well, yeah, but I'm 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 prepared to argue that point. Oh, sure, but, sure, but I, I was mainly getting to the fact that this might have been the first time that Roddenberry was really thinking about telling a story like this. Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, it was it, you know we, we were talking about this, and this is kind of well known, but this was originally one of the uh, stories presented to be the second pilot episode. Can you imagine? 
Yeah, well, it was this, Mud's Women, and Where No Man Has Gone Before, and I think they chose the best of the three. They they chose the only one of the three, in my yeah, opinion. I guess so. <laughs> in, in terms of really, you know, presenting, you know, Star Trek to the audience um, with its best foot forward. Yeah. Not I, to take anything away from this episode or the Mud, the Mud episode, but I don't know, that really seemed to be the best choice for second pilot. Oh, for sure. There, it's absolutely no brainer. You know, absolutely. That 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 episode had a lot of drama. Great characters. Great villain. Uh, much uh, much more uh, interesting visually and script wise than than this episode would have been at the time. But you know, getting back to to what we've been seeing here on the screen, we just passed the the, the end of the stinger, and something that jumped out to me right at the beginning was that, uh, you know, you're going to get Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beaming over onto the Exeter, yeah, uh, which is the Enterprise-like ship. And as Kirk is walking away, he's talking to Uhura about who to call to the transporter room, and he specifically calls out a Lieutenant Ga- uh, Galway. Yeah. Or Galway, Galway, and, uh, or Galloway. And... This guy is a red shirt. So I, I'm wondering to myself, how did Kirk pick this guy? Was this guy just the next in the line of red shirts who was, you know, <laughs> he was next in line to, to be, you know, sacrificed? I mean, what, what was the deal with that guy? Why, why specifically him? We'd, we'd never heard of him before. And he's just like, well, you know, give me Spock, uh, give me McCoy and give me this Lieutenant Galway guy. I guess he's the next up. Yeah, instead of being like, give me more meat for the grinder. Yeah, he didn't just say, give me a security detail. Yeah, he called this guy out specifically. So, you know, going with the, the red shirt mythos, I thought it was <laughs> kind of funny that he called out a specific guy. I wonder if there's like some kind of a of a list that, that lists all the red shirt guys in a certain order. And if you survive, you're now you're at the end of the list. <laughs> and, you know, the other guy, now this guy's first, so... If you happen to survive, good for you. You've got another, you know, 300 red shirts ahead of you. Yeah. Before you have to go on another away mission. I love seeing these two ships together. Oh, it's very, it's great. Yeah. It's great. And we got kind of a creepy scenario going on here. It's almost like, uh, you know, uh, Star Trek does light horror. Right. So they're... You've got four of the Enterprise crew members on another ship, which, of course, looks just like the Enterprise. And we've got a bunch of uniforms laying all over the place. And they are kind of covered with these, you know, kind of white crystalline pieces of of fragments of, of they look kind of like rock salt almost. And it, it appears that the crew of the Exeter has been changed from their human form into these crystals. And, you know, McCoy is in the middle of analyzing them right now. And he has determined that the crystals are what's left of the human body when you remove all of the water. Yes. So this is kind of funny because in a couple episodes ago, we saw the Enterprise crew turn into little cubes. And now we're seeing a, the crew of another ship turn into a bunch of little crystals. Yes. So the, the, we, we know the cubes were, they were able to be restored to their human format. Now I'm wondering, 
I wonder if there's a way to return the crystals to their human format. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens if you if you take a bunch of the crystals and smash them up together, a couple different people, <laughs> and then bring them back? Would it be kind of like half of one person, half of another? Yeah, it's an interesting concept. I'm surprised uh, one of the future shows didn't run with it. All right, Star Trek continues. <laughs> I hope you're listening to this. We're going to get a big broom. <laughs> we're going to sweep up all the crystals together. And then we're going to bring people back and see what they look like. But uh, here's an interesting sequence that we just saw at the end of. Kirk had asked Spock to look through the Exeter's record tapes. So interesting that uh, the, you know, the ship has record tapes that, that you can kind of refer to. Yeah. I guess you can look at the captain's log or whomever's log and find out what happened to the ship prior to you getting there or, you know, prior to whatever it is. It's kind of like a black box on an airplane. Mm-hmm. Right. Did you also happen to notice that the Exeter crew members had an entirely different logo or emblem on their shirts? Okay. It's not I... the typical triangle logo. It's more of a, a long rectangle interesting logo i i thought that was kind of interesting because i thought that the the these were the starfleet official yeah chest emblems that star and you had the different icons in the middle of the star denoting what area of of starfleet you worked in so you know spock has the circle with the oval in the middle of it Mm -hmm. saying that he's medical or science and uh, engineering has its own. It's kind of a spiral-looking mm-hmm. thing, and you know, I, I thought it was interesting that the exit. And here's uh, Captain yeah. Tracy uh, of the Exeter. Wait, you can see clearly. Isn't that Van Gelder? Yes, <laughs> it actually is Van Gelder uh, from uh, Dagger of the Mind. Yeah, Morgan Woodward. Yes, yes. But, uh, but yeah, no that that there. is neat that they have different um, different patches there. Yeah, you know, I I wonder. I think this is the only episode that has different chest uh emblazoned insignias for other ships crew because we saw we've seen crews of space stations before and they have the same logos right yeah yeah so interesting that and of course uh you know captain tracy is intimately familiar with kirk so we see a little more of uh, kirk's reputation preceding him yeah so he's got a reputation uh, between between himself and other captains of other vessels. But seriously, Captain Kirk isn't wondering to himself at this moment, how did Van Gelder end up on this planet in a Starfleet uniform? Well, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> uh, obviously, it's not Van Gelder, but, uh, you know, from a, from a viewer's perspective, if you were astute back in the day and you watched every single episode, you may have picked up on the fact that it was Van Gelder, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not the first time that Trek recycled actors, and I'm sure it's oh, not no. the last. Uh, and it's actually kind of neat. It's it's kind of neat to see uh, an actor come back and play an, a, a real different role than they played the first time around. Absolutely. And I, I think he, if you look back to Dagger of the Mind, he was exceptional in that role. And he's really good at, as Captain Tracy in this episode. So, I, I mean, if you have a, a talent like that, I mean, why not reuse it? Oh, yeah. You know, why not reuse it? I think it's great. It's a couple of things that, that uh, we may have, have kind of glossed over as we were talking through some other stuff. The, the Exeter 
was left on automatic. The ship's helm was left on automatic. So it was maintaining an orbit around the planet with absolutely no one on board. So kind of fascinating. I don't know if we've seen that happen before, but a, a ship, now we know that one of a, a Starfleet ship can be in, in a purely automatic mode run by zero people. Yeah. Kind of interesting. But at any rate, we're 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 on the planet now and we've discovered that our four Enterprise landing party members are infected with a a disease that will turn them into uh, salt crystals if yeah. they leave the planet's surface. There's something on the planet that is keeping them immune from the effects of this disease. So we've got this uh, you're trapped here forever thing going on. Yeah. Again. And interestingly enough, McCoy is doing some research into this and he references yet another event that occurred on Earth in the 1990s, apparently in the Star Trek timeline, which didn't occur in our own reality. But apparently in the Star Trek universe, there was some experimentation that had been done in, in, in biological weaponry for a war in the 1990s that uh, is, is vaguely similar to the, the disease or virus that they are now currently suffering from. Yeah. Weren't the 90s a pretty busy time for, uh, for Trek? Yeah, man. Because isn't that when the, the eugenics war happened as well? Yeah, a lot of stuff happened in the 90s. And some of that poetry that Kirk referred to earlier in this series as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's another interesting thing. You know, Spock has made some discoveries about Captain Tracy. It appears that Captain Tracy has used his phaser to slaughter a bunch of uh, what he called savage locals. Uh, they're, they're, you know, kind of barbarian-esque people who have been running attacks on the village that uh, our heroes are currently in. So that is a clear violation of the Prime Directive. Right. Is it not? Yeah, and, and this is sort of going back to what I, I, you know, was talking about earlier about it seems like they got pretty caught up this season with talking about the prime directive, which is awesome, but also doing it in this sort of setting. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say this is, you know, like patterns of force, but it's, it's, it's kind of a similar idea. Well, yes, but, uh, you know, I'm going to hold my argument until near the end because I don't want to blow the reveal here. Uh, Interestingly enough, yeah, I think that that may have been the first time we saw a Starfleet captain or high-ranking officer actually kill another Starfleet officer. Yeah, and and looking at this in sort of through through the prism of 1960s um, television, that had to be kind of a an out there uh, thing to see. Yeah, absolutely. You're seeing the captain of a Starfleet vessel intentionally vaporize a uh, security officer of another ship. So, you know, he's a fellow Starfleet officer. 
And now we're, we're learning a little bit more about this Captain Tracy character, and he is quite nefarious. Ah, sorry about that. My <laughs> my cat almost disconnected my uh, oh my headphones, and oh, I'm glad I, that he didn't. I had to react the way I did because um, we would have been dead in the water if uh, if he had succeeded. Well, oh fortunately, <laughs> he did not succeed, and we are still with you. Damn it, you turn your head for one second. I know, right? So uh, I'm sorry about that. No, quite all right. So uh, back to the show. Captain Tracy uh, has pretty much revealed himself. He's he's turned his cards over. And now we know that he is willing to do whatever he has to do. And that includes killing Kirk and company in, in order to reach the end of his plan at this point. So the people on this planet are uh, in possession of a uh, a set of immunities that allows them to live seemingly indefinitely. Yeah, the one guy that was with Tracy here was, what, 426 years old? His his dad was over 1,000 years old? Yes, absolutely. So now uh, Captain Tracy wants to uh, harness this effect and be able to transfer it to human beings and therefore make himself some sort of a a hero of the human race by bringing relative immortality to other people but you know this this is something that i i took away from this episode that i i think has a bit of meaning for me in the, in the, the original series universe, you know, we've kind of talked about in the past, you know, there had to be other ships out there, right? Having other adventures, doing all sorts of things that we don't really know much about. And why couldn't we have a series based on another ship uh, at the same time that uh, that Kirk was flying around out there? Yeah. And this episode kind of made me think about that in the fact that, you know, you, you're seeing this Captain Tracy guy who's obviously become corrupted. You know, Kirk earlier said that the captain's solemn oath is to uphold the prime directive. And we see Captain Tracy clearly, uh, you know, blowing the prime directive out of the water for what he considers the, you know, the gain of all humankind. Uh, You know, so he's kind of throwing his oath out, you know, and and just kind of doing what he wants to do here. And uh, Kirk is incorruptible you know you've got you've got tracy attempting to sway kirk and convince him to join his cause and and bask in this glory and kirk is absolutely duty bound he's completely uh, dedicated to his oath and to the cause of starfleet now i'm i'm going to start to believe here that the reason why we're we're focused on the enterprise and we don't have other ships is because kirk is pretty much the model captain right i mean you're seeing other captains who are in the same role as kirk who are pretty easily swayed from their oaths yeah it almost makes you wonder if starfleet um or the federation uh, needed a better vetting process (laughs) yeah really i mean because we've seen a, a guy in a previous episode uh the doomsday machine we saw commodore decker who is of a higher rank than Kirk, 
who was unable to deal with the adversity that he experienced and, and essentially broke down and was willing to put other Starfleet officers' lives in jeopardy. Yeah. Now, Kirk... This is was, a, a great fight, oh. by the way. I mean, Kirk just gets dismantled. Yeah, more more that Trek foo. <laughs> and you've got two Starfleet captains who are at the top of their game with Trek foo. And, uh, you know, Captain Tracy, a couple of good neck chops took Kirk right out. Yeah. But... Uh, Interestingly enough, I, I I'm kind of taking something major away from this episode, with uh, the, the corruptibility of of Captain Tracy and Kirk being able to, in the spite in the face of certain death here, being able to stick to his guns and stick to his oath and stick to the Starfleet code. Yeah, Kirk essentially is the perfect captain in the original series. Yeah, that's a great that's a great observation. Yeah. So, just something like that came to me. Yeah. As I was and, and by the way, I you know, another thing I wanted to mention is that Sulu right now is temporary uh captain of the Enterprise. He identified himself as temporarily in command when uh, Captain Tracy was on the the communicator up to the ship. Yeah, I'm sure Scotty was pretty unhappy about that. Yeah, Scotty's been left in command a couple of times while Sulu was on hiatus. And he seemed to do a good job. He did. I'd imagine that somewhere in this episode, uh, in a deleted scene that's uh, buried somewhere or in a draft of a script, you had Scotty uh, drinking some uh, some uh, some alcohol, uh, bemoaning the fact that he, he was not given the bridge. No, poor Scotty. <laughs> Another fight. So we get two fights pretty close together. Yeah, and this one is very drawn out. You know, Kirk Kirk is fighting this uh, this barbarian looking guy for quite a while. Yeah, and you got a bit of comic relief going on here with Spock. I love how you you, you see Spock lurking in the cell in the background, and he kind of works his way into the corner to get as close to Kirk as possible. Yeah. So, did you notice in this scene that that McCoy has a bunch of medical devices that have been beamed down from the ship? And he's operating, obviously, electrical devices on a planet that has no power. <laughs> they must be battery-operated. Yeah. They've got to be. Now, here's the old uh, the old gag with the guard nodding off and the prisoner attempting to uh, you know, get one over and the guard waking up just in time to stop him, right? Yeah. Oh, there you go. And McCoy has to fake him out and grab a yep. hold of the drink. Just getting my drink. Yeah, you know, hey, listen, man, I want some Tranya, too. <laughs> yeah, we got we to gotta, <laughs> gotta enjoy ourselves, you know, while we're here. Uh, uh, great stuff. You know, this this fight scene, you know, I felt bad for Kirk in this because, you know, he's actually kind of, this is almost like a wrestling match. You know, you're a big wrestling fan, Craig, and, you, yes. you know, this is one of those things where you got the lone wrestler versus another wrestler with his interfering manager, <laughs> Yeah, his valet, yeah. You know, he's got he's got this woman with him. We don't know if this is his wife or his girlfriend, but uh, you know, every time Kirk is in a situation where he may be winning this fight, you know, the chick comes up and and gets a cheap shot off. Yeah, and she's pretty tough because Yeah. pretty what? Pretty soon Spock's going to use the the nerve pinch for the uh, what second or third time this episode. And it takes her a while to go out from it. Yeah, I actually think it's the first time, but we, there are multiple oh, uses. Okay. Yeah, I do remember that. It seems like they sort of threw that script note away about, 
Bach being limited in the amount of times he could use the the nerve pinch. Yeah, I think our uh, our, our frequent listener Matt Walski from uh, Facebook pointed out that they kind of tossed that aside and uh, they thought the better of having him only use one per episode. And it, I think maybe mid second season that was tossed aside. And here's a little comic relief moment here where uh, Spock is is yelling some advice to Kirk and <laughs> in the middle of Kirk getting choked. And here we go. Here's your nerve pinch. Oh. I mean, she. I mean, she's a. She's pretty tough. Yeah, she took a couple seconds to go down. You know, a, a lot of times people normally just uh, drop right away, and that reaction shot from Spock was great. Oh, and this is great too because you get a couple of there. You go. You get a couple of camera direct. You know, quick edits between Spock looking at the guy and the guy looking at Spock, and more funny, uh, more funny commentary there. And I guess it's kind of a scary thing when you see a guy with pointed ears you know instantly knock your girlfriend out just by touching her yeah yeah So that diffused the whole fight scene and you know by the way the amok time famous amok time fight music was used uh, again in that scene right so and we'll hear it again too by the way yeah that's such uh such iconic music absolutely and did you hear that the, the little comedy bit at the end there Kirk says, I was ashamed, you know, I wish you could teach me that, that neck pinch move. And Spock actually says, I've tried to teach that to you. Yeah. So, and, you know, here I was thinking that the, the Vulcans used some sort of, uh, some sort of mind power along with that, that neck pinch in order to, to create that catatonic state, but maybe not. Yeah. I always thought it was kind of somehow tied into the physiology of being a Vulcan. That's what I thought too. Like maybe there's an extra tendon or something in their hand or, or um, a way that they, they place their fingers that humans can't um, well, some I, kind of, some yeah. kind of mojo. I, I had thought that it had something to do with their mental powers where, yeah, I never really put that together, but that, that would make a, a whole lot of sense as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you, it's something to do with the mind melt. So when they grab you, they can kind of do some sort of a quick mental pulse that, that yeah, yeah, disrupts sure. your your brain. But Yeah, like a, like a human EMP. Yes. Yes, exactly. So and there's a strange connection, by the way, between Kirk and this, this seemingly barbarian guy. Kirk says the word freedom. Yes. And this guy says that freedom is one of their holy words. Mm-hmm. So once again, we're on a planet where the people inexplicably speak English. <laughs> uh, funny. So we've got the, uh, the combs, which are the, the Asian uh, looking individuals on this episode. And uh, what are these? The ganks, the yangs, yangs the yeah. yangs. Yeah. The yangs are the barbarian esque. Uh, people who are dressed in animal skins and uh, have uh, bracelets of bone wrapped around their arms. And here's another wrestling-inspired moment where we're going to have the team-up and then the heel turn. Yes. So, yeah, you, you've got the two. You got Kirk and the seeming enemy now teaming, teaming up, up to, to, uh, to fight, break to the, fight bars. the bars. <laughs> Amazingly, they can turn these bars and, and break the, the mortar. That's yeah. holding them into shape into the into the rock there, and uh, that's actually kind of a cool effect. 
that they poured down some uh, some granulated uh, concrete. And here's the heel moment. Oh. Oh. You know, I'll tell you, there are so many headshots in Star Trek. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't have a concussion problem. Yeah, nobody goes and nobody gets a concussion from all of these these ridiculous headshots that go on. So and this know, guy's in Hulk, in Hulk mode oh, now. Totally barbarian, ripping those bars out. Yeah, and of course now you don't actually get to see them climb out the window because they, in actuality, the actors probably couldn't have climbed out that window. Yeah. But uh, now they're mysteriously gone. And they win the steel cage match. They do. And poor Kirk <laughs> is out. Oh, man. That's a shame. So Kirk has taken a lot of headshots. Now he's coming to finally. Yeah. Thank God. But he's been out for quite a while. Yeah, what? Spock says, what, seven, a little over seven hours? Yeah. Like he, he must have taken a hell of a blow to be out that long. But, you know, no lasting ill effects. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, no, no fractures, no broken, no cracked skull, no nothing. Just hit you know the back that of the that might have really been sort of the you know the little nudge Kirk needed to get some sleep. Yeah, maybe. You know. Yeah, yeah, seven hours and eight minutes. Wow. And and was Spock mentally keeping track of that? You think, like in the back of the head, he just started counting. I guess so. They don't wear watches. Yeah. And, you know, and I guess uh, nobody came to check on them in seven hours or eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, no feeding or no bathroom breaks. No, nope, no guards. Or I guess no there's nothing. some kind of toilet in the uh, in the bathroom. Certainly there. doesn't look like it. There's yeah. sand floors, and this poor guard does not know how to hold a samurai sword. No, and he's about to get jobbed out too. Oh, absolutely. So Kirk scratched on the door yep. to distract him, and and uh, there's the other nerve pinch. Yep, there we go. See you later, buddy. So no no prison can hold Kirk and Spock. Yeah. And I like how McCoy was like, oh, hi, guys. You know, like. And he keeps working. Yeah. It's it, it's it's funny because for me, it was like McCoy knew they were going to come back. He just wasn't sure when. He didn't doubt the fact that they were going to find their way um, through whatever they were going through, you know? Yeah. I think it's kind of neat. You know, he was like, eh, I wasn't worried. No, it wasn't out at all. He just kept on working straight through them, breaking through the door. But so now you get a couple other interesting hero moments here. You know, Spock is going to to rejigger another machine into a communication device. Yeah. And McCoy is going to deliver the genius uh, medical diagnosis or theory that the the uh, the immunity that these people possess is not transferable to anybody else because they've built up a resistance over thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. It was almost like it became, you know, some like part of their, their genetic makeup. Yeah. So he can't extract that and transfer it to someone else. So now we know that captain Tracy's uh, crusade is a fool's errand. So he's doing all of this, all of this murder of these, these seemingly savage people. His breaking of his oath to the uh, the prime directive, all for nothing. So shame on him for for not researching it a little bit further. But maybe he couldn't have because it was just him. He didn't have any of his medical staff on the planet. Now check that out. Now Tracy vaporized a machine, and Spock has some sort of collateral damage. I don't know if this is the first time we've ever seen something like that happen where a phaser can can shoot an object and someone standing near it 
had some sort of an ill effect from that? Yeah. Usually you have to take a direct shot from a phaser. I, I love this scene, by the way, because you're seeing some of the craziness that he that that uh that Van Gelder exhibited. <laughs> Yeah. Again, that's, that could be that could be this could be footage uh, from Dagger of the Mind, couldn't it? Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, the same uh, craziness, the same mannerisms, you know, being portrayed again. But it works works very well in this scenario because you know you have a captain who he's just been out in the field apparently because of the escaped uh, the the escaped Yangs got back out into the field and warned all the rest of them. Now there's been some sort of a mass attack. And uh, they've pretty much depleted their phasers, taking out thousands of these these savages. Yeah. Pretty sad. What a massacre that must have been. Oh, totally. What a massacre. It's a shame. But now we're we're breaking the news, of course. We're breaking the news to Captain Tracy that uh, his plan is all for naught. So, so it's, it's a shame that a, a bunch of people had to perish. I guess that's what the Prime Directive is really all about, isn't it? Oh, totally. So we're, we're really learning firsthand what happens when you throw the Prime Directive aside. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, and the funny thing is that, you know, all the Starfleet training in the world and and Tracy can't snap out of it. Yeah, it almost seems like I was thinking about space. uh travel sort of being like undercover work for cops Hmm. where the longer you stay under um, the harder it is for you to remember what your mission is. That's a great, I I never thought about it that way. Yeah. I mean, cause you'd have to imagine that there has to be some kind of um, effect on you when you're, you know, the the Star Trek crews on a, on a five-year mission and they have, obviously a crew that's very, very tight and, you know, uh, works well together and seem like friends. But can you imagine maybe a, a, you know, a starship that is just everybody being professional and not really making those connections Hmm. and, you know, how that might impact you? Um, Because it doesn't seem like they have intergalactic Skype or anything that, you know, makes it easy to talk back to your loved ones at home. Yeah, no iPhones in the future, (laughs) apparently. I think you know this scene that we're actually seeing here with with Sulu, you know, not complying with Kirk's order to send down the ten phasers with the extra power packs. I love that. I think this is another example of why we see the Enterprise week after week because not only is the captain incorruptible, but his crew is rock solid, mm-hmm. man. They are so dedicated, you know, they're not just loyal to their captain. They're also loyal to the oaths that they all took. And, you know, no matter what Kirk wants, if it doesn't jive with what they know to be the rules, they're not going to break the rules and, and, you know, bend to Kirk's will when it just doesn't seem like the right thing to do. And we've seen people break the rules and stick with Kirk, but, uh, this obviously asking for phasers to be sent down to the planet surface with literally no explanation as to yeah. why uh, Sulu's smart enough to not comply with that. Yeah, totally. It's a great it's a great moment for Sulu, and it's another great indicator of the kind of captain that Kirk is. Yeah, absolutely. In that he's empowered his crew 
to not blindly take his word. Right. They can they can question his orders without fear of repercussion. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Uh, is that the first, by the way, is that the first time we saw a phaser legitimately out of power? Legitimately, I think probably, yeah. You know, yeah. we've seen, um, you know, moments where I guess the, the power source has been blocked or, mm-hmm. or, or, or drained on purpose. But yeah, that might be the first time that we've actually seen one that was just uh, out of gas. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a, kind of a, a cool thing to see that we know Kirk was up against it. And, and that was it. But I think, um, you know, this, this episode has had a lot of criticism uh, levied against it. And I think that for me, this is kind of where it starts to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen in the past several, you know, Earth-like civilizations that that pattern themselves after uh, different time periods and i know you were alluding to this earlier on in our commentary and i i think this one actually lines up the closest with uh, a, a time period in earth's history than than the other one simply because of the fact that the documents that they whipped out are that they will they will pull out shortly are identical mm-hmm. you know so you have your declaration of independence and it's identical to the one on earth so but the difference being and you you brought up did you bring a piece of the action earlier um that but also i think i referenced patterns of force right so those are two that i had listed in my notes here so you had previously you had piece of the action which was uh modeled after gangsters of the 1930s or 40s or so mm-hmm. and you had a piece of the action which was a nazi world war ii era patterns of force yeah. patterns of force i'm oh, sorry what did i say you said piece of the action oh, again. wow i'm out of yeah. it uh yeah patterns of force so the the difference i'm just going to point out the difference between this episode and those two was that those two episodes were civilizations that were affected by an outside force to become what they were. So you had the book uh, in patterns, in not patterns of force, in the book in piece of the action, which caused that civilization to turn into the, the gangster civilization. And you also had an, an outside force that introduced the Nazi way to the piece of the action people. Now this episode, we are expected to believe that this civilization developed on its own to be exactly like the early days of the United States of America. Yeah. Now you've even got, you even go so far as to say on their own, they've developed the exact same flag as the United (laughs) States. You also have the Yanks, the Yankees, which is the slang term for, the Americans. Yeah. And you also have an exact duplicate of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, I, I was thinking to myself that um, if they had done this episode exactly the same way, but just slightly changed a couple of these details, it would have been so much more believable. Like if the flag was similar but different. 
Yeah. You know, the stripes were a different color or maybe the stars were a different place or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. And and maybe some of the 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 terminology used uh, in the Declaration of Independence was slightly different or, you know, substantially said the same thing, but just in a different way. Yeah. But and isn't even that flag probably what the flag looked like in 1960 in the 1960s as opposed to um you know earlier in our country's history oh sure yeah because there's more stars on it well yeah the number of stars changed multiple times yeah in our own timeline yeah so i also thought that the 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 use of the pledge of allegiance was a little bit uh a little too on the nose yeah a little too close but you know the funny thing was is there was a there was a bit of dialogue between McCoy and Spock towards the end of the episode where McCoy was questioning the similarities uh, to to uh, actual Earth that was cut from the dialogue in the actual show it was edited out a bit so you know even McCoy uh, in the original screenplay for this was skeptical yeah yeah. Um, but I think you could obviously see. I mean, I don't think the episode itself is a bad episode. I just think that there were some some tough choices that were made. And you know what I was thinking to myself as I was watching this earlier to do some research for this. Uh, this was a Roddenberry episode. Yeah, it was one of the the handful that he um, has sole writing credit on you know he he's credited with writing the teleplay exactly. And despite the fact that he had gotten some advice from other people regarding the script to try to clean up some of these weaker points, uh, he kind of ignored them and went with his original teleplay for the most part. And I, I that made me think of, of, of another parallel, which was, you know, the Beatles. Yeah. You know, Lennon and McCartney, you know, they balanced themselves out together. They were an incredible songwriting force, but on their own, they didn't meet with nearly the same success as yeah. they had met together. And I, I guess that, that that kind of serves as a, a lesson in collaboration. Oh, yeah, you know, totally. When, when you're so into your own concept that you can't really take advice from other people, maybe it suffers mm-hmm. a bit. And I think the episode up till this point was was pretty solid for me. I, I, I enjoy watching it, but but a couple of these things that I just can't suspend my disbelief on. Are, are kind of what takes away from it. And they all kind of happen near the end, of course. Yeah. But mm-hmm. not not to say that there, there aren't a, cool, a couple of cool other things that happen during this sequence at the end. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to rag on this, of course. I mean, this, 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 uh, that's not the point of our show yeah. to rag on these episodes. But no. It, it's just, uh, you know, something that I couldn't escape watching this. You know, I've seen yeah. this many times, but it's something that I just have a hard time suspending as oh, okay. and and that's completely a completely valid valid uh, argument and it's funny that we talked about patterns of force because the director of this episode uh vincent mcgivity who we've talked about a ton on this show he directed six episodes of the series mm-hmm. um the last episode prior to this that he directed was patterns of force and hmm. we are now only going to see him one more time before um we're done covering uh the series and that will be um specter of the gun oh that's a fun one. Yeah. So uh, we're cycling out shortly. Uh, you know, we're, we're you know, uh, we've said goodbye to a, a couple of directors and uh, we, we don't have to say goodbye to uh, to Vincent yet. 
No, but we will give him his proper goodbye when we get there. Yeah. <laughs> I love these scenes with Tracy. He 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 channels Van Gelder so well. Yeah. You have to and, wonder. And there was a little uh, a little uh, emotion from Spock there. Yeah. Did you see he kind of had that kind of perk up look when the knife went to his throat? Yeah. You kind of wonder, though, what is Tracy's end game here? He's trying to make them believe that Kirk is, uh, I guess, a false god and yeah. and Spock is his uh, devilish assistant. But what yeah. is he playing? You know, obviously maybe it's just a survival play i think that's what it is at this point yeah because his plan is already gone he can't possibly harness their immortality so he's kind of stuck he's going to be living on this planet the rest of his life at this point so he's got himself into a life and death fight with kirk but even if he were able to kill kirk what what is what is his eventual outcome going to be here yeah and another fight scene between the two of them they're tied together kind of um uh west side story style right the knife fight so they're trying to grab the knife but they're tied together with a little little bit of a leather strap so they can't really do their trek foo as they would like to but a lot of dragging around going on but we're gonna see a pretty cool oh we got the the amok time fight music again by the way but we're gonna see mr spock doing some telepathic style influence yeah on another person without touching them again and you know you would think that this capability look at that look at this the the foot strength there yeah kirk is holding he's holding a van gelder what a boss Tracy back by uh by holding onto a table with his feet that's awesome i love the coverage there too that they showed you know they sort of showed why, and, and and here we got the uh, the mental trickery. Now you would think that this would be an ability that Spock would make use of often. I wonder though if it is tied into the fact that he had already used the nerve pinch on her. Maybe he maybe his mental energy is depleted, and he can't use it very often. Maybe maybe it takes a lot of his strength. But yeah, no, or I like he's that, made that a physical time. connection with her and. You earlier alluded to the fact that it might be partially mental, the, the nerve pinch. So having already made a connection with her, he still has that link. Perhaps, but the last time we saw him use it, he didn't. So I'm not sure uh, that was in uh, by any other name where he was yes. able to control someone through a rock wall. Yeah, but okay, yeah. Um, I'm, 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 it, you know, it's a little inconsistent. Yeah. But well, according to uh, some of the things that I read, this may have been a uh, a byproduct of one of Spock's presumed powers very 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 early on. Uh they they there was a plan, I guess, or an idea that Spock had some sort of power over women. Oh, okay. And that was kind of tossed aside, but this may be a leftover a thing that was left in this script because of course this was a script that was written in 1965 uh the the first draft was in 1965 uh you know quite a bit before the series actually debuted yeah so there may have been some concepts left over in this script that never really made it uh into the series proper right right and now once again we see Kirk's reluctance to kill an enemy oh yeah 
So uh, he let Tracy live, let, much like he let the Gorn live. Yeah. Right? So uh, now and we've got uh, Sulu has arrived with some security detail uh, to save the day. But nice to see Sulu off the ship. Yeah, totally. Good for good for Takei. Glad to see him be able to do a little bit more than sit behind the helm. And uh, now we've got just enough time left in this episode to allow uh, Kirk to do some of his, favorite, his famous monologuing, <laughs> his grandstanding. And I think out of, out of all of the episodes in Trek... Yeah. Out of the th- all three seasons, I think his Shakespearean acting chops are are most prominently on display here in this episode as he's able to recite uh, some words from the, the Declaration of Independence in his dramatic fashion. Yeah. So uh, good on you, Shatner. Mm-hmm. Good on you. You know, and he's, <laughs> it's funny that he's... Uh, he he does this with such passion. Yeah. He he makes you really believe, you know. And he, he throws a little of his own interstellar experience in here, of course, by mentioning that he's seen documents and words similar from planets and lands, you know, across the stars. Right. And it, it, the message is always similar, right? But, you know, I think that despite the, the, the kind of hokiness and you're going to see an ex- a copy of the declaration right there, actually on the screen. But I think despite the hokiness of this particular sequence of the episode, I think the message of this episode overall fits in very well with the message of Star Trek. Oh, totally. You know, e- equality and, and justice uh, for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and Kirk is preaching what they've tried to, uh, what the prime directive is, is kind of all about, you know, maintaining that, that level of, of, of equality for everybody. And he's saying that the, the, the message is not just for the leaders, but for every single person on that planet. And he's trying to implore them to make peace with the combs who are their enemies. Yeah. You know, I, I have to say that, uh, I, I really see Roddenberry's uh, influence here. It's very strong, especially near the end of this episode. Oh yeah, yeah, and that and and if if you were going to make any argument for this being um, considered as the second pilot, um, this aspect of it would be definitely what would sell it. Absolutely, and think about it this way too: we had kind of riffed on the fact that you didn't hear a lot about the prime directive itself until later in the series. Yeah. And here it is in a script that predates the first episode. Yeah. Yeah. So if this had been the pilot episode, maybe the prime directive would have played a much more prominent role in the first and, and first portion of the second seasons. Totally. Yeah. So we're wrapping up. Mm hmm. You know, our first commentary back from our couple-week hiatus. And I think we did good. I think we did all right. So you want to roll into our essential voting? Sure thing. And uh, I'll go if you want. Absolutely. Um, I think based on the amount of times we've seen the Prime Directive dealt with prior to this, mm-hmm. um that's really the only thing on display in this episode that would make it essential for me. There are some cool character things, but I don't think any of it 
you know, I don't think Sulu's actions, you know, warrant this being a, an essential episode. And like I said, in a vacuum, uh, this episode, uh, you know, without patterns of force or piece of the action, um, would probably end up on my essential list, but we've seen it twice already this season. Uh, I don't think there's anything introduced here, um, that we haven't seen before. So I'm going non-essential. Okay. I, I agree. I agree. This is non-essential for me as well for, for most of the same reasons, but I I'll say that, uh, anybody who's listening to this show, I'm glad that you were listening to this because, uh, we've, we've kind of given you a bit of a rundown on some of the really interesting things about this episode. And I think that I, I would like people to take away the fact that this was a candidate for a pilot script. So, you know, taking that knowledge in hand, knowing that we've seen the two rejected pilot scripts made into episodes, one being Mud's Women and this one, the Omega Glory, and comparing that to where No Man Has Gone Before, I think we can kind of walk away from this episode knowing you know what what the what star trek could have been if either of the other two episodes had been selected for a pilot right so, very cool little bit of background information but this episode itself as much as i hate to say it being a roddenberry script uh it, it is non-essential for me as well all right all right so that that wraps up our coverage of the omega glory our 52nd episode and we'll be back next week with our 53rd episode and in the meantime once again i want to mention that we are available on social media on facebook at the uh, tricorder transmissions and ttt underscore pod on twitter and you know jump over to our regular website the tricorder transmissions.com because we do have a forum that's available now and we've got a couple people some listeners are on there posting and talking back and forth with us we're having some more in-depth conversations about certain episodes so please if you're interested in talking about this stuff jump over to our forums and throw up a post there anybody can sign up it takes two seconds and uh you know we'd love to hear from you totally totally all right so until next week thanks for listening to the tricorder transmissions take it easy everybody Star Trek was made financially possible by what Gene liked to call the similar worlds theory. Basically, this theory stated that if life were to develop on other planets, it would be of a very similar nature to humans. Now, even though this theory is far-fetched, it did have a purpose. It allowed us to create stories where the aliens appeared human and we could use existing sets. By and large, our viewers accepted this premise, but there was one episode that took the similar worlds theory to an unlikely extreme, the Omega Glory. When Gene Roddenberry was given the go-ahead to produce a second pilot for Star Trek, he came up with several ideas. And the one that got made was Where No Man Has Gone Before. The one that was rejected and was produced more than a year later was the Omega Glory. What can I say about the Omega Glory? To be quite frank, this was a terribly painful episode to shoot because it was so heavy-handed. It was surprising that it came from Gene Roddenberry, who had been responsible for writing many of Star Trek's best episodes. Before long, Gene would leave the series as executive producer and take a job in development at MGM. 
He would occasionally take part in creative decisions, but Gene Roddenberry's day-to-day involvement with the original series ended not long after this disappointing episode.